0: So thankful for this time. Uh, we thank you for your word, for the power of it, Lord. And I pray that it would not return void. You promised that in your word, Lord. And we ask for it today that you would speak to each heart in this room, including mine. Uh, may it go deep. May you change our lives, Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and preach through Taylor. Um, that every word you have for him to preach will be preached, and um, you would speak even to him as he preaches. Uh, change us as a body uh, and make us who you want us to be through your word. Submission, I know everybody's really excited. It's a nasty word in our fiercely independent culture, isn't it? Yes, I heard a kid say, yes. Yeah, that's my kid. How should the Christian relate to human authority, governmental or otherwise? That's really what this text in, in 1 Peter 2 is about. It's timely. It's always that he's set over us um, under some authority. God's, of course, and human authority that he's set over us. Um, But it's also in his good providence timely because um, we have so many things afoot in our federal government. We have local elections coming up. We had the speaker, the federal speaker of the house um, finally elected and put in place this week. And so um, Peter speaks to um, our submitting to authority as Christians here in this text. And, um, I want to put across to you over the next 30 minutes that Christians should submit to human authorities for God's sake. That's what Peter's telling us is what he tells us in verse 13, very straightforwardly. There's a lot of nuance. Okay. There's probably not as much nuance as we might like, but there's a, there is a lot of nuance. There's some, I don't don't know if I want to say exceptions, but there are some exceptions and there it's, it's a, it's a very important, very practical topic. So Christians, Peter says right out of the gate should submit to human authorities for God, for God's sake. And we'll press into that, um, so, and I want, I want us to be convinced, I'm more convinced now than ever after having spent time in this text this week, that um, submission to human authority is submission to God. Once we leave here, I want to be more convinced that submission to human authority, that God's placed in our lives, in his providence and sovereignty, is submission to God for our good and for the good of the world. So here, as I said, Peter tells us um, to submit to every human institution. So to governments, he starts in verses 13 through 17. To masters, masters, so to masters and bosses, he says, slaves, uh, slaves to their masters. Uh, for us, that would that would be um, to our bosses and to those in authority in, in our lives, occupationally and otherwise. And then, and then in chapter three, Nathaniel didn't read this text. In chapter three, he uses the same verb "hupotasso" in the Greek. He uses it to submit to governing authorities. He uses it. Um, starting in verse 18 for for servants and slaves to submit to their masters. And then in 3.1, he uses that same verb again for wives to submit to their husbands. That will be, okay, so originally the plan was I was going to preach on that next week. I'm bumping that a week because in my going over this, the notes yesterday, I realized this is too much material. And so I'm really just going to focus this week on verses 13 through 17. So our submission to governing authorities, and then we're going to move into uh, servants and slaves submitting to their masters, us to our bosses, etc. and we're going to look at what that looked like in the ancient world, what it looks like today, what it, was, what it looked like throughout history, and what it should look like until Christ returns. So there's no reason for us to rush. Um, it's one of the great things about having your own space is that um, we can set our own agenda, and we don't want to rush God's word, and I don't want to preach a 50-minute sermon, and I know you don't want me to either. And so, um, so we will deal with 13 through 17 this week, and um, we're looking at free to submit, so next week we'll be free to suffer, under our submission to slaves to masters, and then of course Peter really at the end of Nathaniel's text really gets into this beautiful exposition of what Christ did for us—the gospel. Of course, even though that isn't our text for today, I'm going to preach that at the end. But um, and it's throughout—it's throughout our sermon. You know, it's it's the it's the linchpin for why we submit because Christ submitted Himself to His Father and did that for our good, and there's where the power is. Um, but we will look at that and uh, and then. Freed from sin by our Savior is point was point three of this sermon, but we're not going to get to it this week. So that's for next week, and then we'll hit uh, chapter three: uh, wives submitting to husbands, and really us as one as to another as as, as unto the Lord. Um, so just as an overview, and then we'll jump into our single point: we're free to submit. We are free to submit. That's the, that's the title of the sermon. Um, Peter makes it very clear: it's for God's sake. It, this is not, we're not, it's not our submission as Christians, as new creations in Christ, is ultimately, Peter says, to this ancient church in Turkey. Um, it's not because of human authority, ultimately. It's because of God. Why? Because God works this way. And we'll talk about this. He, as, a, as the Trinity, as one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Son is constantly, since the beginning, since before the beginning of time, The posture of the son is gladly, without sin, without any domineering. There's no domineering in God. He is glad. The way that the the fabric, the the thing, the one thing in the universe that is not created, that is the most essential, the most foundational, in itself, the son is submitting constantly and gladly with joy to the father and the spirit to the son and the father. So this is the fabric of the universe. And so this, I think, is at the heart of why actually this is the way things work best. And what sin does is it turns us inside out and upside down. And it says, no, you assert your own rights. And when you have a bunch of people in a room, all each asserting, each standing on his or her rights, how does, how does that society work? It's a disaster. It's because of the Trinity. It's because the Trinity doesn't work that way. So Peter is actually showing us that the way up is the way down because of who God is. And he showed us that in clear and vibrant color through the incarnation by becoming one of us. And so we're going to talk, talk about that too. So we're free, we're free to submit to government is what Peter says in verse 13. And again, I want to underline in verse 16, he says very clearly, we are, we're not slave people who, who have to submit. Even if literally, and we'll get to this next week, we're slaves, we have, and we have no political or personal freedom in the ancient world or in places today. We are, if Christ has set us free, we're free indeed. We're free from sin. We're free from the thraldom of sin. We're free from the wrath of God. We are we're free in his love to be his children. We've been brought into a full inheritance. And so much of that, it begins now, but we're not going to see until we see him face to face. But it's coming, and it's a guarantee if we're in Christ. So, so we are free people who willingly submit, he says in verse 16. And then um, I'm not going to get to this much this week, like I said, but verse 18 is so hard-hitting. Um, Peter says, "Submit even to unjust." You kind of want to wiggle out of it because in verse thirteen and following, he says, "Submit to government as unto the Lord." And then he goes on to extrapolate and says, uh, "Hey, because government's good and they seek to bless you and and they seek to punish evil." But what about a government that is the opposite of that, right? So d- does that get me out of having to submit to them? Well, Peter says in verse seventeen, "Don't worry, we'll get to some of that." Uh, submit even to unjust masters, and by extension to governors, all those in authority. So, again, questions immediately arise in our minds, like, what about to Hitler? Do we submit to him? Should the American colonies have submitted to King George Third and the British Parliament at the end of the 18th century and not declared independence? You know, our, our, our sort of foundation stone politically as a government, as a, as a country, excuse me, kind of sits on that. So the Tyndale commentary nails this. Um, it says, let me just be very clear, be subject, right, here in the ESV, be subject uh, for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, says Peter. So be subject means to be submissive to an authority, and this usually implies obedience to that authority. A ton of scriptures are, are cited. But there are occasions recorded in scripture. This is not every ser- Every pastor wants, essentially, what, not every pastor, but I've heard it said, I agree. What you want is, when you're preaching, a lot of times you want people to be, be paying attention, obviously, not falling asleep. Some people pay attention like this, and that can be unnerving, because you're like, are they sleeping? <laughs> um, sometimes when I'm really focused, I'm looking down, or I'm closing my eyes i i have had a few just like i had one guy resting his head on his cane i think he was dead asleep in the back while i was preaching in in uh, reedy creek uh south carolina but um every preacher once you you want to see as you're preaching god's word and, and his spirit is in you and his and His gospel's going forth the notes at first but then in the end you kind of want people just sitting there listening taking it in um but if you do take notes this is this is probably a note-taking sermon so um Let me go on with the Tyndale commentary. There are occasions recorded in Scripture when God's people have disobeyed human government and have been approved for doing so. We can think of Exodus with the midwives. We can think of Daniel, and I'm going to mention Daniel in a bit, um, and there there are examples in Acts 4 and 5 and Hebrews 11. Um, The principle to be drawn from these passages, there are going to be a lot of principles in the next 25 minutes. The principle to be drawn from these passages is to obey except when commanded to sin. I'm going to say it again. The principle is obey governing authorities, except when they command you to sin. So, we, because we're doing it as unto the Lord, we don't we don't sin against us, even in our obedience to the governmental authorities. That's where it stops. Okay, but even so, and I'll get to this. Even in our obedience to the governing authorities, or our disobedience rather, we need to do so in a spirit of submission, because God has commanded us to do that. It's to Him ultimately, and that's where the power is for for ultimate subversion. And we're going to talk about that. Um, Okay, submission to the state is commanded, but not absolute, and certainly not worship of the state. We are seeing increasingly the rise of statism, which is state worship. When We, ha- we are worshiping creatures because God made us to worship him, and so what sin does is we worship anything but God. Calvin said, We are idol factories. We will worship something, and I'm not—I'm not throwing shade on sports fans. I do it too, but just as an example, and everybody, every pastor uses it. But you see people worshiping, even if they're just celebrating, it's okay. But you see us in in in, in stadiums where, ah, you know, I mean, that's—we worship whether it's sports teams or or whatever. uh, We are worshiping creatures, and so as God increasingly in a society is is worshipped less and less, it's not like we're going to stop worshiping we will worship. And as the state gets bigger and bigger and God is pushed out, especially by the state, we we will see more and more state worship. And so we're seeing more of that in our culture. Think about it, though, in Peter's time when he's writing this in, let's say, 62, 63 A.D. uh, Worship of Rome was was demanded. Uh, Caesar was worshiped as a god. And so Peter is writing that we ought to, we need to submit as unto the lord to governing authorities whether just or unjust into this context. So if it's real for us it was even more real for them and costly extremely costly. Peter in Peter's day quote worship uh, Rome's excuse, her, excuse me Rome's major antipathy to Christians is not that they worship Christ but that they worship Christ alone. When it was demanded by the Roman state that, that Christians worship Caesar, they had to draw the line and say not going to do it. And that was actually the best thing they could do for the state, because worship of the state is not the best thing that you can do for the state. Um, Peter saw this, like I said, in Rome in his day, w- the early church did. We see it in Revelation, state worship of the great harlot of the great Babylon. Uh, we, um, we're, and we see a lot of times in Revelation, you see, which is for the, it's for the, from Christ's ascension until the, the day he returns. Like That is the time period in the book of Revelation that is, that is the last days, that is for for us. So we see the rise of the state. We see the rise of these, these false gods. We see the rise of the great harlot, which really is oftentimes commerce and capitalism and the worship. Nothing wrong with those things, but when we worship money, when we worship the government, these alternatives to worship of the true God. Um, so Peter saw it in Rome. We see it in Revelation. We're seeing it more and more today. And um, what I'm talking about is statism, right? Um Verse 13, again, be subject for uh, uh, for the Lord's sake, excuse me, to every human institution. That word human institution in the ESV is actually creature. That word in the Greek is actually translated creature, and there's not an instance, according to my research, um, there's not a single instance where, uh, now, I think it's rightly extrapolated as every human institution, but there's not an instance where it's not actually, the word doesn't mean just creature. Um, so really... And, and, and here in this context, what, what um, Peter is talking about is, is um, governmental institutions, but he's really even more than that saying governments are made up of people. And so the people that God has put in place over us and authority over us politically and governmentally, we're called to, to submit to them. But it really ex- it extends to more than that. Let me read this. The inclusiveness of the word every, a commentator says. Makes it appropriate to apply this statement, therefore, to other legitimate human authorities. Parents, okay, child, I almost said parents to children. Every kid in here is going to be like, yes, parents, you, have, you must submit to me. No, no, right? But parents and children, so children to their parents, uh, members to, to the pastors and the elders that are called to, to, to govern them, to love them, to shepherd them. There has to be submission there for the church to work as unto the Lord and, and us to the Lord, right? Um, and us to one another. There's always that exchange, right? um but authority structures in business educational institutions it's just the way like i said about the trinity because of the trinity it's the way things work it's the fabric of our of a healthy society there has to be submission and even mutual submission um god has established such patterns i'm quoting of authority for the orderly functioning of human life and it both pleases and honors him when we subject ourselves to them nor should we think that the need for authority is only due to sin like I said, for there's authority among, sing- let's take another couple examples, among, singless, among sinless angels, there's authority in a hierarchy there. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Jude 9, and places in the Old Testament. There is, author- there is um, submission in re- in the redeem- among the redeemed in heaven. We see that in Luke 19.17 and 1 Corinthians 6.3. And even, uh, like I've said, the members of the Trinity for all eternity. We see them submitting one to another. And then the son eventually laying all things before the father's feet and going to the cross gladly because the father had called him to it. And he was, they had agreed before time began. Um, So students to teachers, Peter says, children to parents, works, um, worker, he extrapolates, actually. We could extrapolate from him, I should say. And then workers to bosses and so on. Um, How will people see the beauty of Christ? By us asserting our rights? No. In this way. We're free, and we show it through submission, through our submission and service. So why why submit? Okay, we've talked about that some, but we've talked about what it ought to look like, the what, uh, in the life of the Christian a little bit. But now for the most important question of why. Why ought we? Especially to evil people and administrations. And Peter says very clearly, it's for the Lord's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. Um, because he is trying and he has made us in his image. The son, as I've said, gladly submits to and serves the Father and the Spirit, the Father and the Son. So human society is built to operate, not because of sin, but because God works this way, It is built to operate in this way. Um, and, and like I said, hell is the opposite. And you see hellish societies and hellish community of pe- communities of peoples where people, everyone's standing on his or her own rights, right? Um, and I'm not talking about um, human liberties that are an inheritance of the Judeo-Christian faith. I'm not talking about that. That's a good thing. Um, but they say that you've heard the, maybe you've heard this example of in hell everybody, there's not that there's no food, it's that everybody has a really long spoon. I don't know if you've heard this, but it's kind of a silly example, but it gets some of the point across that, um, that the spoon is so long that there's food, but you can't feed yourself, so you have to serve one another. I'd have to feed Pavel or Laurence, and they would have to help feed me. And so because everyone's so self-centered and so focused on self, and there's no, there's no submission, there's no service. There's no submission that everyone goes, goes hungry because everybody's got this long spoon where they, can only, they can't feed themselves, but they can feed others. And so that's just a silly example of how hell really takes this and turns it. And sin, sin being kind of hell in us, yeah, um, the consequences of sin are obviously death and hell. Um, but, but sin turns this inside out, and sin just insists on saying, no, I'm not going to submit. Jesus showed us another way. Um, and this all really speaks to us about the nature of God's kingdom. It's not of this world. Um, it works through human authority and evil and good. Um, death, not a, not self-assertion, is our pathway to life. Um, Paul Miller writes a book called J-Curve, and he really talks about, it's basically a 250-page exposition of, of Philippians 2, 5-11, through the Christ hymn, where it shows... How God himself and the person of his son did this uh, in a perfect way, where he had every right to, uh, to assert himself, to be on the throne, to have every privilege. It was They were all his by rights, and he relinquished those rights, remaining God for a time. And he went down, not just to become one of us, not just to be born in humility to poor parents, which he chose as a, as a helpless baby and to poop his pants. and to to feed on his mother's breast, like any child does, and so on and so forth, and not to be able to articulate with words until he was X years old, and on it goes. All sinlessly, all as our representative, all in our place. But he even went down to the point of death, and even death on a cross. A shameful death where he was no loincloth, stripped naked, beaten, scourged, and even even down to hell going to hell, taking what every single person would have who looks to him by faith. Everything that we deserve, he took on that cross. He went down to the lowest place. And because of that, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul says, because of that, God the Father lifted him to the highest place. And he is now on his throne. And that is the God that we serve. And that is the God whose power is in us and moving through us. That is the God who has liberated us and whose power moves through us as we, through the power of his cross, submit even to evil structures, even in our personal relationships to people that we don't want to to submit to, but God's put them over us. Um, This is how God's kingdom will grow, through death, not through self-assertion. This is why the blood of the martyrs, as Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said, the blood of the martyrs is indeed the seed of the church, not self-assertion. Anywhere where the church has um, lots of power, where the church is rich and she's in bed with... The, the ruling structures of the day, you think of the state church and uh, the, the wealthy, the, the, the materially wealthy church. That church is languid. That church is often um, innervated and powerless. And uh, it's, it's when the church is being persecuted that, that, that the power of Christ goes forth through her. And when the church is not being politically persecuted, that's a blessing right now, right? That's a blessing in any society. Um, but when it's not being, it, as if, it's, if it's running according to the very, the very life of Jesus, and we are submitting ourselves one to another, to the government, to those in authority over us, and if society is seeing that, we'll talk much more about that, um, that is where society actually gets transformed and where the image of Christ grows in us more and more, right? Um, in Peter's day, as I've, as I've touched on, this command was a far harder pill to swallow, we, hey, we think we have it bad now. Um, Peter is telling us, for God's sake, be subject to the emperor. And who was, that, who was that emperor at the time? It was Nero. His name is a byword for savage beast, right? godless to the nth degree. He reigned from 54 to 68 A.D., and Peter probably wrote this around 62, 63 A.D., This is, scholars think this is probably right before he ramped up, Nero ramped up his massive sort of statewide persecution of the Christians. But it it was bad enough now, and it would get worse after Peter wrote this letter. And then, hey, he writes second Peter a couple years later. And then maybe the year after that, um, Nero crucifies him upside down. So Nero uh, made the worst of our presidents, governors, and congressmen look like Mother Teresa. Um, possibly one year after this letter, First Peter, in 64 AD, classical uh, scholar Ro- Robin Lane Fox, uh, a dude, by the way. My wife's name is Robin, so we always got to – classical scholar Robin Lane Fox writes – this is quoting him. He says, Nero needed scapegoats to divert the charge. This is in 64 AD, okay, maybe a year or two, probably a year or two after Peter writes this letter. He says, Nero needed scapegoats to divert the charge that he himself was responsible for the great fire of Rome which burned down much of Rome, by the way. He or his advisors knew where to look to yet more Christians in the wake of the one whom they had recently executed, Jesus. Christians were rounded up and executed as a public spectacle in the gardens of Nero's monstrous golden house. Some of them were dressed up in this... By the way, this scholar, not to my knowledge, not a believer. He's just a classical scholar out of Oxford, taught it, still teaches, I believe, at uh, at C.S. Lewis's old college, Maudlin. Um he says, some of them were dressed up in the skins of wild animals, a fatal charade, or as he would say, charade, a fatal charade in which they would be attacked. So they were dressed up in skins of animals, then they were attacked and ripped by fierce hunting dogs. And this was sport to these sick Romans. Others were crucified or set on fire and burned to death. That's in the book called The Classical World. Um, in a few short years, Nero would crucify Peter upside down. Peter submitted to that, just as Peter's lord submitted to his Roman cross 30 years previous. In so doing, both submitted to the father of lights who love them and will avenge the evil. We're going to get into this big time next week. This is in verse, I believe it's 24. We'll touch on it. It's in verse 23. It's in verse 23. We'll touch on it at the end of the sermon here. But um, God will avenge the evil perpetrated against his people meantime he will use it to affect much change and to make us more and more like jesus but he will not let anything go unless it is if it is not punished in christ it will be punished to the nth degree because god is just do you do we pray for our government officials or do we trash talk them more uh which do we do more of i remember this is not in the notes but the, the phrase trash talk pulled this up just now we were at a I went to a seminary in Charlotte and Robin was with me for two of those three years, Charlotte, North Carolina. And we were at a sermon once at a church. I think it was a night, it was a Sunday night service at a church that wasn't uh, our church. And we heard the pastor, he was a stand in and he, and he's, I think he was kind of stumping for, Hey, you guys encourage your pastor. He was maybe off or he's like, encourage your pastor. And he said, Hey, most of us, instead of encouraging our, pa- and this isn't, I'm not saying this cause I feel very encouraged by y'all, which is awesome. Hey, not every pastor does, um, far from it, but, uh, y'all are a dear congregation, but he said, hey, most of us, instead of encouraging our pastor and like praying for our pastors, we uh, we have roast, our, our, lunch, our lunch is like, ro- we have roast pastor for lunch. I just remember that phrase, and it made me chuckle, but it also, you know, I shed a tear. Um, so do we pray for our pastors? Do we pray for the elders um, that have been set in authority over us who will answer to God for what we do and don't do? Do we, uh, do we pray for our governing authorities? Do we pray for our bosses, especially if they rub us the wrong way, especially if um, they're abusive or, or abu- yeah, abusing their power? Um, if, we did, if, we, if every Christian prayed for those in authority over us daily, uh, our nation would look different. Our representatives would govern differently. So Peter says, again, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. God is telling Peter this to tell the church in Turkey and through that church us. And then God took his own medicine, didn't he? 30 years previously, he had done this very thing, as we've talked about. He submitted himself gladly to his father, to the Roman state, and was crucified for our salvation, for the salvation of anyone who looks to him. What an act of power through utter weakness. And it looked, it looked like he was utterly helpless, but he was fully in control, knowing that he was free knowing that the father had called him to this, knowing that he was submitting himself to his father. And that's what we do as his body when we as Christians, holy in the world but not of it, live in this kind of way. So some more answers to the question why, why submit to government and authority more generally, people and authority over us specifically. Um, government is a good thing that God provides for people. Uh, if you're taking notes, we're just going to rattle off a few more reasons. Um it's a good thing we're law. We're to be law-abiding citizens, uh, respecters and upholders of good laws, and governments having nothing to do. Let me get real practical. Having nothing to do with those who seek to defund police, and disregard law, honor vagabonds, criminals, and thieves. I'm not getting political. I'm getting practical. We can see uh, this. Um, what this is doing? Excuse me. When we when we do disregard law, uh, we can see. What this is doing in cities around our country, especially on the edges, on the coasts, and, and in other places too, right? Uh, they're, they're falling apart at the seams. And God tells us through Peter here in Paul and Romans chapter 13 in particular to oppose this evil behavior, this madness. Calvin, uh, the reformer, says, Government established by God ought to be so highly valued by us as to honor even tyrants when in power. He had to flee for his life from his king in France. And he set up shop in Geneva, and so so amazing was the society there after a few decades that people would go to Geneva from all over Europe just to see. They called it the heaven Because because anytime you have government instituted by the Lord, biblically run, not perfect, because anytime you have humans, nothing is, unless it's the Lord, uh, nothing is going to be perfect, but government is a good and he said, he said even to tyrants when in power, and further, Calvin goes on, some kind of government, however deformed and corrupt it may be, is still better and more beneficial than anarchy. Submitting to evil bosses and regimes is actually the most powerful form of resistance. I've touched on this. Let's dig in just a little bit. And still it honors God and leaves us blameless, right? It's more powerful than refusing to submit to them, than fomenting rebellion, insubordination, insurrection. What is more subversive, than overthrowing evil political regimes. And the answer is, what is more subversive is submitting to them and honoring those in charge. Quote, living as servants of God. As we said, Jesus did this. Look at how subversive the cross was. Look at the power that has been going forth for 2,000 years to change person after person, heart after heart, society after society, culture after culture, because of the cross. The power of God that goes forth when one acorn dies in the earth lets go of its rights because it's been freed. It's been fully loved by the triune God, by the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and it knows that it doesn't have to hang on to anything. It's getting a full inheritance, and so we can we can submit. Um, the subversion it, of the cross, it ended up overthrowing the entire Roman Empire, kind of changing it like yeast and bread, like ink and water from the inside out. Um, but initially, it looked like the Roman Empire crushed Christ at the cross and did but ultimately he wins he wins we can say see the same thing with Martin Luther King Jr. and civil rights in post-World War II 1950s and 60s America where there was a peaceful he saw this god the godless aspect of of the culture that he was raised in was was that um, slavery had been abolished but there weren't full rights they were not blacks were not being treated and people of color were not being treated with equal human rights and those all come from the scriptures, from our Judeo-Christian scriptures and inheritance. And so he was pressing in as a theologian and as a pastor and as a human to the biblical, he would write letters to pastors, obviously to the wider society, and saying this isn't, this isn't consonant with, uh, this treatment of people of color is not consonant with our Christian heritage, with the scriptures. And it was a peaceful, submissive uh, protesting, at least those the things that he was in charge of, and um, look at how it's changed our society, and it's still changing our society. We're not perfect by any means in so many ways. You same same thing, with, a similar thing with Nelson Mandela in apartheid South Africa. You see the, a similar power happen, the power of the cross, uh, in the first three centuries and beyond of, of Christians in the Roman Empire, as we've said, um, where they were persecuted and crushed and killed and fed to the animals and burned um, eventually after 300-plus years, um, Christians had so infiltrated the culture that it was made. Christianity was made the the religion of the empire, and and it really transformed society. And then you see, to a certain degree, the same with Protestant Christians on the European continent and in England and in Scotland in the 16th century. Um, Our submission to men for God's sake makes God look good. It shows his beauty and builds society, and it makes society look good in the process. It, and it and, and makes society to become good and better. Verse 15, looking at verse 15 here, um, Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Um, in Peter's day, there was lots of ignorant talk about Christ, Christians, and Christianity. Some thought it a side sect, uh, anti Jewish. These are things they thought, right? Uh, cannibalistic. They thought that the Lord's Supper was that people actually eating drinking blood and eating flesh. They thought it was a hypersexual with the love. They thought that the, the Christians worshiping were um, not because the kids here, but they thought it was bad things that Christians were doing. That they actually weren't doing. They were worshiping the Lord, but there were all sorts of ignorant, ignorant talk about what Christians were about and doing. Um, many thought it contrary to good Roman citizenship because Christians would not, they would manifestly, they were great citizens that was insisted upon by Peter, by Paul, by others. They were, they would not worship Nero. And so because of that, because they were in a statist society where it's like, oh, the state, is, the state is everything. You have to worship. To be a good citizen, you have to worship Nero. And they thought that the two were, um, the two were it was tant- you know, one was tantamount. Worshiping Caesar was tantamount to being a good citizen. Not true. Um, so, so Peter and Paul um, emphasized to the contrary that Christians ought to be the best citizens, not, not slavishly following every dictate of the state but paying taxes, raising families, working hard, fully honest, bettering society, fighting crime, upholding just laws, loving our enemies, great neighbors. we got to be great neighbors. I think of uh, our last week, I was classically absent-minded professor. I locked myself out of my house. I got to my house. I didn't have a key. Or I thought I didn't. Where's the hide key It's empty. You know, what, what good is a hide-a-key if, it's, if there's no key in it? Welcome to my life. But so I go to my neighbor's house, next-door neighbor, and she brings out, this tray full of keys. She's not sure which mine is. And she's got like literally like 30 keys in there of different neighbors. I'm like, what a great neighbor. That Every, every Christian should have a tray like that of like 30 keys. And like, cause she's that trusted. Like she's just an awesome neighbor. And so everyone's like, Hey, Stacy, can you, can you keep our key? And, it, and she, it turns out we looked for like three or four minutes and finally we found my key. And so thank you, Stacy, but we all ought to, we all ought to be those kind of neighbors. Um, in our day, increasingly, there's ignorant talk about Christians. How should we counter this? Peter tells us. Silence their ignorant talk by doing good. Um, my brother-in-law, has a, he says, sing it, don't bring it, or don't bring it, sing. Uh, uh, excuse me, bring it, don't sing it. Sorry. Um, yeah, don't sing it, bring it is what he says. Okay, so action. Um, if Christians would obey Peter here, a lot less mere talk and a lot more walk, um, people would see Jesus as he is, attractive, and be drawn. Um, uh, one of the huge reasons that, and you see this crop up in Peter here and in Paul, uh, one of the huge reasons that he gives for our submission to those in authority over us is that people would see Christ as attractive, um, as his body operates in society. And it's evangelistic that they would see the beauty of the risen Christ, uh, in every society he's placed as totally countercultural, increasingly. So as we are more and more godless, but, um, but submitting ourselves one to another and to the authorities in our lives. And it's it's an evangelistic um, reason. And again, Jesus is our best example of this. And Peter goes on to say in the text that we won't look at, follow in his footsteps, live as he lived. So often, and we'll talk about this more next week, we, we, we do talk about and we will forever talk about, God willing, Jesus as our substitute. But we ought to talk more about Jesus as our example. And Peter said, he mentions jesus as our representative and substitute here he died to to bear our sins on the cross he hung on the cross for us because of us to make us clean to make us free he took on the shackles of sin death and hell to free us um but also we ought to walk in his footsteps we ought to live and seek to live as he lived and he lived a life of submission um but he was fearless too wasn't he so we're not talking about being mousy and timid um being good citizens also means being able to criticize the state. It also means being involved in the state. We must participate in every aspect of society and culture that is not inherently sinful. So I don't want any of you going out from here thinking pastors recommending um, um, prostitution or getting a job as a drug dealer. Um, that's not glorifying to the Lord, right? But if it's, uh, if it's not inherently sinful, we ought to be, we ought to be involved in it. Um, this can only happen... We can only criticize the state if the state's not supreme, if we understand the state's not God, because you can't criticize what you worship. You will not criticize your God. The best German citizen in 1938 and ni- or 1943 was not some blind devotee to Nazism. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who truly loved Germany and her citizens, and therefore hated what he saw Nazism doing to them and to his country. And so it is with us today. Submitting to our governors doesn't mean slavishly following them but it does mean praying for them. It does mean voting. Get out and vote if you can. Voting them out if we think them ungodly or ineffective, but uh, being law-abiding. Peacefully protesting the law if it keeps us from loving, honoring, and fearing God, who is our primary allegiance. Um, so Peter here is advising, commanding Christians as primary citizens of God's kingdom to be good citizens of whatever secondary earthly kingdom. Um Karen Jobes writes, Peter's exhortation here is prefaced by a claim to divine authority. If it's God's will, not simply Peter's, that Christians do good, even in pagan societies, for by such behavior they will silence the slander about Christianity, and all the more so if they are publicly recognized by the authorities for good works that benefit their city. It is difficult, she says, to square this teaching with any worldview that recommends strict separatism from society and withdrawal from civic responsibility as a legitimate Christian lifestyle. Um, wish I had more time for this. Don't, as I, as I draw to a close, but God has his people everywhere on that note, right? We can think of Daniel, who's in the highest echelons of society in the Babylonian, the wicked Babylonian, pagan Babylonian empire. Um, Daniel, at some point, said, and, and he obeyed so many of the laws, and he was he was one of the, he was like the best um, political employee just second to the king only. Such was the excellence of his behavior and his honesty and his reliability. But there was a point at which he said, you know, the king wrote an edict. He was kind of fooled by some of his advisors who hated Daniel into writing an edict that said uh, that made him that would have made Daniel disobey God. Don't pray to anyone but the emperor, but but Nebuchadnezzar, um, but yeah, but the uh, but the king. And so, um, sorry. So Daniel's goes right after that, after he learns about the edict, and what does he do? He says, okay, I'm not going to pray to God anymore. No. He, the edict is going to force him to disobey his, his God, and so instead he goes, and as was his custom, he prayed with his window open, uh, facing Jerusalem, I believe. He did that three times a day to punctuate his day, and uh, he was throwing the lion's den for it, but it ended up benefiting the state. Uh, the king saw the power of God, and Daniel suffered for it, but um, We're still talking about it today. Joseph, very, very similar story. More obscurely, there's this guy in 1 Kings 18 that few of you probably know about, although you probably read about him. Obadiah, not the prophet. Obadiah, he was over, maybe the wickedest king in all of Israel was King Ahab, his wife Jezebel. You've heard of him? His household manager was a guy named Obadiah who was tasked with going to find the prophet Elijah who was off cursing the land of Israel for her disobedience and bringing drought on the land. And the king Ahab was ticked. And the short of it is that Obadiah turns out he's in the employ managing the household of wicked king Ahab, but it turns out he's a godly, God-fearing person. He's been hiding prophets by fifties in caves, prophets of God, to keep them from Ahab. God has his people everywhere. Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household. Herod was a wicked, wicked king. His household manager, she support, supported Jesus with money from Herod that was paid to her husband. She supported our Lord's ministry, that's Luke 8, 2 through 3. And then those in Caesar's, possibly Nero's household that Paul mentions in Philippians 4, they were part of the church. Converts. Um, so we are to live as people who are free. We are free people um, who are free to serve. Not, not because we have to, because we're constrained. We are servants of all and masters of all. Luther, Martin Luther, as I, as I wind down, let me quote him on Christian liberty. Martin Luther says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example, um, our ultimate substitute and example uh, of this, right? He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he freed us in his life and in his death and through his resurrection uh, from sin and death and hell. So when we serve man, ultimately we're serving, we're serving God. And so he gives the example, you know, of, of uh, the Roman who said, hey, carry my, carry my stuff for me, uh, citizen, or, or, or non, non-Roman citizen, Jew. Um, and so you could be a Jew and a citizen. I'm not saying you couldn't. Paul was. But if you're required, for instance, to carry Romans, uh, and the Rome, Rome had Jew, the Jews under their thumb, and they were your enemies, and if a Roman asks you to carry their, their stuff, their gear, it would take you off. And Jesus says, hey, and when they ask you to carry it one mile, do it gladly, submitting to the Lord and not to them ultimately, and carry it a second mile. Who do you think at the end of the second mile and at the beginning of the second mile and in the, in the middle of the second mile, who do you think is in control at that point? It's subversive. It's subversive. We will be slaves to something. The only way to not be enslaved by something that will ultimately harm us even if it's good, like uh, uh, if you're a slave to others' opinion about you or a slave to your job or to your class performance if you're in school, the only way um, to to not be enslaved by something that will harm us ultimately is to be slaves of God. Slavery to God means freedom in every other area of life, Um, even if we are literally slaves to an earthly master or in a prison cell. Slavery to God is the only way to live as people who are free. And let me just finish with... um, Again, I'm, I'm pressing into the text where Peter gives us this glorious exposition of what Christ did for us in the gospel. Let me just read the last, a couple of verses where he, he winds down this chapter. Um, as Nathaniel read, he's talking about Jesus in verse 22, and he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He knew who he was. That's me. That's me inserting. He, Jesus knew who he was. He didn't have to answer he answered to his father. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, here it is, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, and I'm gonna press into this big time next week because that'll be a part of our text. Ultimately, we know we don't have to take justice into our own hands, even if we are abused by submitting to unjust masters, governing authorities, and so on, because God sees and God is just, and we entrust ourselves to him, knowing that ultimately people, when we will have to answer to him, and every abuse will be accounted for whether paid for. If it's not paid for by Christ, if somebody doesn't hide in Christ, they will be they will pay for it themselves. Every single abuse. Um, we can trust we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And Jesus did. And he was vindicated and he will be vindicated for eternity. Right. So that is and we're going to get much more into that next week. And then finally, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Why did he do it that we might die to sin and live to righteousness? Jesus became in Deuteronomy it says that if you curse it is he who hangs on a tree. I think that's one of the reasons Peter says calls it the tree. He reminds us Jesus took the curse we deserve to to bring us the blessing that's fully his by rights. And also a tree is a living thing. The cross was dead wood. Through death Jesus brings life as we die to the need to assert ourselves we are obeying God and the power of the cross is flowing through us to change relational dynamics, to change boss work dynamics, to change <coughs> governmental structures, to change whole societies. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Practical, hard, nuanced, good. Lord, thank you for the gift of, of getting to worship the God who is the word who you tell us who you are and you do it manifestly through your son Jesus and so Jesus we just we just worship we worship you the triune god through uh, through your full revelation of of who you are Jesus we we thank you for your submission to the father for your submission to the governing authorities and for the power unto salvation that goes that has gone forth um, we bless you we love you, um vindicated by your by your resurrection and your ascension um, we bless you we love you make us people who are, uh, submit as un, as not unto others not unto that that person or that governmental structure or that boss but ultimately to you because we trust you and we know that everyone will have to answer to you the just judge and so help us to hide in you because if we're judged on our own merits we're toast but you, you took our sins upon yourself, and you give us your merit, all received by faith. I pray that we would be proclaimers of that, even through our submission, that people would see the beauty of that and go, I want to know more. Would you make us that kind of people? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, every, every week we, we, um, we move from preaching the gospel to eating and drinking the gospel. And by the way, um, if you have a kid that you that you want to be part of this, go get that child, and in, uh, in in kids just just that way, and if you. Want